It's good to be back with you again this morning. Uh, thanks to Wes for filling in for me last week uh, while Jess and I were away. Um, and I know he did a wonderful job, uh, but we are going to pick up uh, right where he left off. So we'll be picking up in uh, chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke. So if you remember our uh, really brief, uh, simple outline of, of the Gospel of Luke, you'll remember that uh, the first uh, two chapters were an introduction uh, to uh, Luke's Gospel. And uh, they, uh, in, in those two chapters, uh, Luke introduced us to the main characters uh, of uh, Zacharias, uh, Zachariah, uh, Elizabeth, uh, obviously their son John, uh, Mary and Joseph, and their son Jesus. And uh, we uh, had the two infancy narratives, and we, we saw how Jesus, uh, he was born, how he uh, grew up uh, and was presented at the temple uh, last week uh, when Wes was uh, filling you in on that, and how he was at the temple, and he uh, increased in wisdom and stature. Uh, he grew up. Uh, he was a, he's a real uh, human, a real man. He, he grew up like we all grow up, uh, physically, uh, uh, intellectually, uh, uh, and uh, now he's at this point, as we go to chapter 3, uh, we enter this new section of Luke's gospel. So we've had this introduction now, uh, Jesus is an adult, uh, and now we're moving into this section on the preparation of Jesus for his ministry. Uh, so we'll have uh, this, this section here, uh, which will cover some very important moments in uh, Jesus' life. Uh, the most, one of the most important is Jesus' baptism, uh, and Luke uh, attaches the genealogy to this section, so we'll look at that. Uh, we can divide up that section uh, in, in those ways, uh, with, with John preparing the way, and then Jesus' baptism, and then his, the genealogy. And then we see the temptation of Jesus. So we have these, these two uh, major events, Jesus' baptism uh, and the temptation, uh, after which then, uh, Jesus is, is now sent out into his ministry, which begins in Galilee. And that begins uh, in chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 13 and 14, around there. That's the transition. And, and that's the, the next main section of Luke that hopefully we'll get to. Uh, there's so much that we need to discuss, so we'll, we'll go through it as, as quickly as we can, but making sure we're spending time uh, where we need to, uh, to, uh, uh, to cover everything. Uh, but we'll we'll get into his uh, ministry in Galilee uh, after we get through these these important uh, sections. Uh, so this morning uh, we'll we'll turn now to Jesus's baptism. Hope to cover that, uh, and uh, maybe if we have time at the end, we'll we'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, this genealogy that Luke includes in his gospel uh, after Jesus's baptism. So then, turning now to uh, Luke chapter three. Uh, he begins again with this introductory um, information, uh, a superscription, uh, if you will. It's a um, historical uh, information about the the political, the geopolitical uh, period at that time. So we're jumping forward in time now, and now we're in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And he goes on to list uh, uh, him. Uh, and uh, five other Roman officials and, and two uh, high priests to describe this period. So we, we're in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. 
Uh, so we're around uh, the year uh, A.D. Uh, 26, 27, uh, somewhere in that time period. Uh, and uh, this is also the time when Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea. And he also mentions uh, Herod, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod's brother Philip, the Tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene. So we have these, these five Roman officials that are mentioned here. And, uh, um, and I'm going to jump forward. We're going to talk about this, John the Baptist, as an Old Testament prophet. But we have these, these five Roman officials that can be uh, somewhat confusing for us. Uh, but uh, it's important that we talk about them. We just make sure we're all on the same page. And I know it can be, uh, I made the... the uh, joke a couple weeks ago about uh, how I only ever got to watch C-SPAN when I was at my grandparents' house. That's the only channel that they got on their TV, on their cable. And how Luke can sometimes feel uh, like we're watching C-SPAN. We're just talking about all these political figures that no one really cares about. So I wanted to make it a little more exciting this morning. So I thought we could play a game. I already heard some, some oh no's in the, in the crowd this morning. I thought we could play fill in, the, fill in the Tetrarch. We could fill in the Tetrarch. So Tetrarch, uh, you might hear the word uh, Tetra in there, four. Uh, so after Herod the Great, after he's, uh, uh, he's deposed uh, from the throne after his death, his, uh, his uh, empire of Palestine, this area here, uh, was split into four. And so we have these, these four different sections. This section is divided somewhat, but that's together. So we have these four sections. And uh, Luke lists the four people who are ruling these different regions, these different sections. So this, is a, this will be an open Bible uh, game, so feel free to look at, at Luke. But let's go through these sections together. So we have this one here, uh, Judea which includes Idumea south of it and Samaria as well. This is one section. So who's the tetrarch, who's the leader of Judea at this time? Pontius Pilate. There he is. You guys got it. Great job. So that's an easy one. So Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is not a direct descendant of Herod the Great, uh, but his one of his sons, uh, who originally ruled that, um, his uh, son, oh, what was his name? Uh, Archelaus. Archelaus, he's mentioned in Matthew. Uh, Archelaus, Herod the Great's son, was so bad uh, that, what's that? Oh, <laughs> how bad was he? He was so bad that even Caesar Augustus was fed up with him and got rid of him. And so instead replaced him with Roman officials, Pontius Pontius Pilate being the most well-known, most famous of these Roman officials to, to govern this uh, region. And so obviously Pontius Pilate, he'll show up uh, later on in the story, in the gospel account. Excellent. Okay, let's move on to Galilee. Who's the Tetrarch of Galilee? Fill in the Tetrarch. Herod. Specifically, Herod Antipas. This is Another of Herod the Great's sons, he's, he's uh, known and, and listed as, as simply Herod uh, in, in the gospel accounts. So he ruled Galilee and this region here, Perea, 
Uh, he ruled that after his father's death, and uh, and uh, he's uh, one of the when when you see Herod in the gospel accounts going forward, it's usually referring to uh, this Herod here. But now uh, we jump up to this purple region, and you can see uh, Trachonitis is is listed there. Uh, so who is the tetrarch in this area? Philip. Herod Philip, who is Antipas' brother, son of Herod the Great. So he ruled this northernmost region. He was given this region after his father's death. And so he ruled it uh, next to his brother here. Uh, They have an interesting relationship, as we'll learn more going forward, uh, when we learn that Herod uh, actually took his brother Philip's wife Herodias. And John the Baptist had some things to say about that. Uh, but uh, I won't spoil the whole story uh, yet about how that all goes down. All right, last one. We have this area here. This one may be a little harder, uh, but uh, uh, process of elimination. There's only one left, but you can see right here, you might not be able to read it. There's a city, Abila, and we're told that someone is the, the tetrarch or the governor of this region of Abilene. So who, who is uh, in this section here? Isanias, exactly. We don't know much about him. Uh, this, this region would be given uh, to Agrippa I, uh, and he shows up more in the, the Acts accounts. So those are the Tetrarchs. Everybody did a great job. Good job, everyone. Last question, bonus question. Where does Caesar Tiberius go? Yeah, he goes all over. This is this all is because he's he's the emperor of the entire region. All right, that's it. That's that was our map break. Everyone did a great job. Good job. All right, fun's over. Back to the back to the text. Now, one of the interesting things I was as I was studying this and reading this. So Caesar Tiberius, he's the the second Roman Empire, uh, emperor after Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the Caesar uh, that we read about earlier when Jesus is born. And now uh, he's, he's taken over. He's the su- successor to Augustus, and we're in his uh, 15th year. So who here before uh, this class, uh, who here could have, uh, other than reading this, this verse in Scripture, uh, just show of hands, who here knew that Tiberius was the second emperor, second emperor of Rome? Anyone know about him? Yeah, a few people. I'm not going to call on anybody. It's okay. Just, just a show of hands. All right. Now, a show of hands. Who here has heard of John the Baptist before? Knows about him? Hopefully every hand went up. I, I think some people weren't playing along, but everybody knows John the Baptist. The point is, how would Tiberius Caesar feel <laughs> knowing that Nobody really knows much about him, but everybody knows about this obscure uh, prophet who lived in the wilderness, who was the son of a priest and his wife of an obscure Jewish town out in the, the countryside. See, this is one of the themes that Luke is, is pointing out to us as we go along. This is, this is the, the, the point of, of going through this exercise as we see all these all these political figures and all their political maneuvering and all their conniving and all their vying for power, and they end up just forgotten, mostly. 
by history. But what does remain is God's word. What does remain is God's son and his ministry and his kingdom that has no end. And while they were all vying for power and all doing this and doing that, unbeknownst to them, little did they know that the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And God was working behind the scenes to fulfill everything that he had uh, proclaimed and prophesied and spoken of through his prophets and in his word to bring about this kingdom uh, that uh, has no end. Back to the text. We're also told that uh, this is also during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So Annas was a high priest uh, from uh, the first uh, decade or so, A.D. 6 to around 15. Uh, He was a very prominent uh, patriarchal uh, figure of his family. And so a lot of his sons, including his son-in-law, Caiaphas, also served as high priests. And it's also during this time that there was a lot of uh, political maneuvering as well within uh, the priesthood. And uh, at this point, the the high priesthood had become um, more or less uh, Roman political pawns in this in this big uh, system of of control that they had they had worked into this uh, into this uh, region in this area. And so, uh, Annas had served as high priest. Caiaphas is now serving as high priest at this time, around A.D. 18 up to uh, A.D. 36. And uh, he'll be the high priest uh, at Jesus' uh, trial. Uh, but it's, it's proper to talk about uh, Annas uh, still being a high priest because of the influential power that he had, even when he didn't hold the title uh, specifically. So we see then all these, different, uh, all these different people and political figures all uh, working uh, in the background. They're in the background of God's story of redemption. Uh, but John the Baptist... And uh, uh, Jesus, uh, God's son, uh, are the main characters uh, going forward. Uh, One last thing uh, to note is John the Baptist, he's the last great Old Testament prophet. He's he's the one that's ushering in this this new covenant, this New Testament era. And what's uh, interesting to see, if you go back here, just how uh, John's uh, ministry is, is announced. It says, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So this is the very similar, sim, similar uh, formula that's used in, in many of the Old Testament prophets. You have the, the prophet's name, uh, John, uh, the son of um, whose father, so the prophet, son of name, so John, the son of Zechariah. Uh, you have uh, this, this phrase, the word of God came to so-and-so. And we also have the... the, the uh, uh, superscription of of uh, leaders at the time uh, that detail when this this uh, ministry began, and so we have this this uh, this John, this prophet, uh, commissioned and sent out by God uh, to uh, prepare the way as as the last great Old Testament prophet, as it were, to announce the coming of of Jesus and to prepare the way uh, for him. So now we get into his, his message here, into, into, uh, into John's ministry. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now there's so much that we can talk about here. 
one thing that's important just to point out at the beginning is that uh, John's baptism was a specific baptism. It was not Christian baptism. Christian baptism is instituted by Christ uh, after the resurrection where he tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was something different, and it's described as a baptism for uh, a baptism uh, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So we want to talk about what that means, but first we want to talk about why the Jordan River? Why of all places is John baptizing by the Jordan? Why does he go there? What's the, what's the import of that? Why, why is that so important? Why is that detail there? Well, in short, uh, this, this baptism by the Jordan River is a new Exodus event. The Jordan River itself, the crossing of the Jordan River in the book of Joshua, was itself a reenactment of the Exodus event. So what do we mean by that? Well, we know the Exodus event itself in the book of Exodus, when Moses, uh, by the power of the Spirit, uh, with God himself leading the way, they, they cross through the Red Sea on dry land. And this is the, the cataclysmic uh, events of redemption in uh, Old Testament Israel. God delivers his people through the waters of the Red Sea, and uh, the uh, Pharaoh's army, the Egyptian army, uh, falls behind and is washed away and drowned. Now, I could mention how uh, it was the Romans, or the, sorry, the uh, Egyptians were the ones who were immersed in that baptism, and uh, the, uh, the Israelites were the ones who uh, went by, maybe with a little sprinkling of the water as they, but I won't say that. I don't need to, we don't need to talk about that here. But this was, this was a, uh, this moment of redemption as God's people are delivered through uh, the Red Sea. Now we jump forward in time now where uh, the people of Israel are, are wandering through the wilderness. Uh, in the book of, of Numbers, talks about that. And then we get to, uh, they're on the doorstep of the promised land. And uh, Moses has died now and Joshua has taken over. And now Joshua is leading the people. And they cross through the Jordan River. And in the same way, uh, as, they, as they step into the Jordan, the, the, the water uh, dries up. Uh, it, it stands up on either side, and the Israelites are able to pass through on uh, dry land. And they enter into the promised land. And so it's not insignificant then. It's, it's no accident at this new moment of, of cataclysmic re, uh, redemptive history as the Son of God uh, incarnate, becoming a man, as, as he begins his ministry, this ministry would begin at the Jordan River, that he would be baptized uh, in the Jordan River, and that this would uh, be uh, a symbol and a signal that this, this Messiah, this Jesus, is leading himself. He, he himself is leading this new uh, exodus, as it were, that he's, he's redeeming his people. He's bringing them through the Jordan River into the promised land, into paradise, into uh, right relationship and right standing with God the Father. There's a really wonderful quote uh, from, uh, from Voss who, who describes what's going on here about John's ministry. And, and he's saying that John is not uh, 
this is not something new that John is doing, but, but it's something that's, uh, that has been done, that's being done in a, in a, a new or, or a fresh way. It's something that uh, this is how God is accomplishing his, his redemption. And so Voss says this, he says, At the point where the old covenant is about to pass over into the new, so we're moving from old covenant to new covenant, He says, John once more sums up in his ministry the entire message of all preceding revelation and thus becomes the connecting link between it and the fulfillment which was to follow. So this is the connecting point now. Uh, We sometimes talk about uh, types and shadows. You've heard that language before. Uh, This is a, a type of Christ or uh, uh, we talk about things like that. Uh, Jesus is, uh, and his ministry is sometimes referred to as the, the anti-type or the fulfillment. That's what it means. And so the type was the, the crossing of the Jordan River or the, the crossing of the Red Sea. And now the fulfillment of that, the anti-type, these were types and shadows. This is the real thing, is Jesus now uh, being baptized in the Jordan and himself leading his people uh, through the Jordan in this, this new exodus, this, this exodus out of sin, out of misery, into relationship, into right standing with, with God once again. So John's the connection then between the old and the new. He's, he's, the, he's the last and great Old Testament prophet, and he's, he's bringing about this, this new covenant. Uh, he's the connection between those two things. So given the sinfulness of the people, given the, that, that fact. So we, we see, and I hope you see, uh, the connection there and why the Jordan River is so important. Uh, so he, this is the uh, uh, new exodus. Jesus is the new uh, deliverer. He's delivering his people out of sin uh, and into uh, righteousness. And so that's why this is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Because the point remains that God's people are sinful. Uh, they're in need of salvation. And John is, remember, his, his ministry is to make people prepared. Uh, that was what was prophesied about him, uh, that he was to make a people prepared. And so he's going out to do that. And to do that is to uh, repent of your sins, to recognize your need for, for a Savior. And remember, Jesus' name means uh, Savior, means Deliverer. He has the same name as, as Joshua. That's, that's the name. Yahweh saved. So again, it's no accident. Joshua was a type of Christ, leading the people through the Jordan River. And now the fulfillment of that, Jesus, Yeshua, he's leading his people through uh, the Jordan River, as it were. He's standing, uh, and we'll get to this later as we get to his baptism, he's standing in solidarity with sinners. Because Jesus did not need to be baptized for the repentance of his sins. He did not need this baptism of John, and yet he did so to fulfill all righteousness, which uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, uh, as as Matthew's uh, Gospel states. But we'll we'll get to that. So this is a baptism for the repentance of uh, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that's so important because uh, John is making people prepared who are repentant, who are penitent, who understand that they need uh, forgiveness. And he makes this clear now as, as uh, he quotes uh, from uh, the words of Isaiah, uh, the prophet. Uh, so he, he's quoting now from Isaiah, a uh, portion from Isaiah chapter 40. And again, this is so uh, 
this all ties together. It's so important. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40 begins this new section of Isaiah, this, this uh, change from, from judgment uh, to hope. Uh, Isaiah uh, 1 through 39 is, is largely about judgment. Now, certainly there are uh, messages and promises and prophecies of hope in those sections. We looked at one of those. Isaiah chapter 9 is the, the promise of uh, that, uh, for unto us a child is born, that wonderful prophecy. Uh, we have the sign of Emmanuel in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, the Davidic uh, branch, the righteous branch of David in Isaiah chapter 11. But most of, uh, mostly, uh, this is a... Uh, Isaiah's message of judgment on Israel and on the nations and even depictions of that uh, judgment and destruction that comes to uh, Israel. And that's how Isaiah 39 ends. But then we uh, shift to Isaiah chapter 40, and 40 through 66 is this beautiful, uh, wonderful picture of, of hope, of gospel hope. This message of uh, an announcement of hope that's accomplished through God's anointed one. Uh, this anointed one who's proclaimed in, in Isaiah uh, 40 and the next few chapters. And it's this, this anointed one who's the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, who's rejected and who's killed, but then who appears back on the scene. Uh, he, he's alive again, and he ushers in this new kingdom, and all nations are welcomed into this new kingdom. And, and that's how the, the picture of, of Isaiah and his, his, uh, his book, how that, uh, that ends. And so then, having, having that in mind, what's the, what's the significance of, of Isaiah chapter 40 uh, being quoted and being referenced here as Jesus is about to begin his ministry? Yeah, yeah, John is the voice. He's the one preparing the way. He's the one that's proclaiming that this hope that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 it's no longer a future thing that we're looking for. It's, it's here. This is the hope that was prophesied to you. This is the, the Messiah. This is the servant. This is the anointed one of God. He's here. And so he's, he's quoting from Isaiah uh, chapter 40. Uh, but again, we, we can um, let me just read briefly from that chapter. Because that begins, verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 40. He says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And he goes on to uh, quote uh, the rest of that section. And so this is a message of comfort. This is a message that everything that was promised in Isaiah, is, is now being fulfilled in this person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who's anointed by God. We'll see that in the baptism. He's, uh, he's the one who's sent to suffer, who's sent to die, but who will uh, rise again from the dead, and that he will usher in the kingdom, and all the nations uh, will, will uh, have access and will be, be brought into this new kingdom. And so therefore, that's why they're being baptized for the repentance of their sins, for the forgiveness of their sins, rather, uh, so that uh, they might make straight uh, the paths of the Lord in their hearts, as it were.
And that's a wonderful uh, analogy, that, that uh, biblical analogy of, of repentance that leads to life. It's, it's the analogy that we, we make these paths straight. And we all, all throughout our lives, we, we all have different uh, things, um, all different uh, habitual sins, different things we struggle with, uh, different seasons of life where we let certain pathways uh, into our heart uh, grow callous or grow uh, overgrown with weeds or rocks. And uh, this is the imagery that uh, Hosea uses, that we have to break up the, the, the fallow ground in our hearts. Uh, this, is what, uh, this is what John is, is proclaiming. This is his message that he's preaching. Like, now is the time. Now's the time to cut away the weeds and to, and to uh, level the road and to clear out all the rocks and all the debris. Uh, make yourself ready uh, because the Messiah is coming. One last thing that's important here, uh, there's, there's many things. One last thing to point out is, is the end where he says, All flesh uh, shall see the salvation of God. And what's really uh, interesting is how this connects then to uh, Luke's uh, second volume, uh, the book of Acts, and the conclusion of that book. Where if you remember at the beginning of Acts, uh, Jesus tells his disciples uh, that they will go and they'll bring the message to uh, Jerusalem, and then into Judea and Samaria, and then into the ends of the earth. And the, the book of Acts follows that, that uh, trajectory. It begins in Jerusalem, and then it spreads to Judea and Samaria, and then Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, spreads it to the ends of the earth, as it were. And he concludes, uh, in, or in Acts concludes in Acts 28, uh, that he has brought his message to the Gentiles, and they will receive it. And so that, again, is fulfilling this, this message of, uh, uh, from, uh, from Isaiah that uh, it would be uh, uh, that all flesh uh, shall see the salvation of God. It, this, this good news has been brought to all uh, peoples. Are there any, uh, I'll just pause there, uh, are there any, any questions, any comments, anything that would be helpful uh, to, to clear up? Yeah, so the, the question of, of uh, the, the washings in general, uh, this was something that was available to, uh, to converts. Uh, so even then we see some of this breaking in of, of uh, God's uh, original design, which uh, Paul talks about, this, this mystery of the gospel that is for, for all nations, Jew and Gentile. The, the, uh, the promise given to Abraham was, uh, was uh, that he would bless all nations, and so again, we, we see uh, bits of this, and actually, uh, we'll see it as we go along here. Uh, so let me just uh, jump in here, because uh, John uh, tells the people plainly uh, that this is not something that is just uh, uh, for the sons of Abraham, or that if you claim Abraham as your father, that is no guarantee uh, that, uh, that you're right with God, uh, because this is for all people who are repentant and who have faith. That's the prerequisite, prerequisite. That's the requirement. So let me uh, go ahead and just jump into this. Uh, so he, he goes on, and again, um, uh, Luke is, is moving somewhat faster than some of the other, uh, uh, or at least with Matthew's gospel does. He, he goes rather quickly through some of this um, baptism uh, narrative. And he, uh, uh, and he doesn't mention us, uh, to us specifically who, who this group of people is. He just calls them the crowds. The crowds were coming to him, 
And to some portion of the crowds, uh, John uh, tells them that you are a brood of vipers. Uh, we're told from, from Matthew's gospel, these were uh, Pharisees and Sadducees that were coming. He's a group of them. And he calls them a brood of vipers because uh, they didn't understand the significance of the baptism. They understood it as, as a, a rite of passage, uh, as a uh, religious ritual, but they didn't understand the inward change that needed to take place. They viewed it simply as an external religious marker. But it was the inward change. It was, it was the true repentance that they needed. Uh, and this is demonstrated, uh, this, 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 this fact is, is clear to us from, from, <clears throat> excuse me, from, uh, from John's words. He says, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Saying, uh, this is, uh, y- you don't understand uh, truly uh, the wrath that is coming, or else you would be repentant. Because he says, uh, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able uh, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. But even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So again, he's speaking to uh, Jewish people here. He's saying this is no guarantee. Just because you claim to have Abraham as your father, that means nothing apart from Saving faith, a penitent faith, a repentant faith. That's what's important. That's what's needed. That's why this is a baptism of repentance. And so again, this gets us to the really helpful distinction between uh, faith and works. See, they they always go together, but... uh, we have to uh, understand them in their proper relationship to one another. So faith being the sole instrument of our justification, that the righteousness of Christ is a righteous, uh, righteousness that, that Jesus uh, earned through his obedience to the law. But we receive that righteousness by faith alone. It's credited to our account, reckoned to us, received by faith alone. And God uh, pardons our sins. He, he declares us righteous now because of that righteousness which is given to us. So we do not earn it. But does it matter whether or not we keep the law? If that's the case, does it matter if we are law-keeping or not? Well, it very much does matter. And this is, this is what uh, John is getting to here, is that we must uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We must bear fruit uh, and do good works, which are the fruit and evidence of a saving faith. And, and that's the key. That's why this, this fruit language is so helpful. This biblical analogy is so, so helpful for us. That good works are not the, the instrument through which we uh, are made righteous. Uh, they're not the, the cause of our righteousness. But they are the fruit and they are the evidence of saving faith. So we think of the, of the good tree that bears good fruit. What does a good tree do? A good tree, uh, necessarily, a good tree by its nature, a good tree must bear good fruit. If a tree is good, it won't bear any other kind of fruit other than good fruit. And thus it's true with the regenerate person. The Christian will necessarily 
do good works. It doesn't mean that uh, uh, his works or her works will be perfect works. So it doesn't mean that they'll, uh, they'll, they'll be a full tree, full of good fruit all the time. That every piece of fruit will be as ripe and as beautiful as it could be necessarily. But it does mean that uh, they will bear some good fruit. There will be some evidence of saving faith. Likewise, the unregenerate, the, the person who has not had their nature changed by the sovereign act of God in their life, they, they'll bear bad fruit. And so this is what John is saying. This is what he's calling us to do, all of us to do as well, is that we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That our lives uh, demonstrate our repentance and our, our faith in God. That, we, that uh, they will know us uh, by our love, uh, John's gospel says. Uh, that our lives will be marked by good works because we're living a life of gratitude for what God has done in us. And so as John is, is preaching this message, he's saying that uh, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a, that's a difficult message, a message of judgment. And so it's, it's prickling uh, the hearts and the minds and the souls of his hearers, as it should us as well. And so they're asking, well, what then shall we do? What then shall we do? And here, uh, John gives us some examples of obedience which are so helpful. What then shall we do? That's the question that every uh, Christian has to ask at some point in their life. What then shall I do? If all this is true, if I am a sinner in need of salvation, and God has saved me out of no merit of my own, but only out of sheer grace, out of the love he had for me, gave his uh, very own son for me to die on the cross for my sin, and now this same God has been raised from the dead and has complete authority and, and lordship over my life, then what, what shall I do? If all that's true, what must I do to walk sincerely, to follow Christ sincerely? And what John does is he, he gives some examples, and some people come up to him, and he gives practical, uh, real-life examples to specific people and specific vocations that are so helpful because every vocation, every calling, every job that all of us have uh, have their own particular uh, temptations and uh, areas of weakness. Every, every situation has its own challenge. And so he, he answered them, and he gives this, this general kind of application. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. The one who follows Christ, the one who follows God, is to be generous, is to look out for those who are in need. But then we see some tax collectors. They come up uh, also to be baptized. They said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, "What shall what, uh, And we, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. And so these very specific practical applications that he's giving to these, these groups of people who uh, were not uh, well-liked, and certainly you could imagine some of the tension of some of the, the Jewish uh, people approaching John for this baptism and seeing tax collectors and, and Roman uh, soldiers and officers there with him as well. Uh, but they're all called to specific obediences, uh, and uh, called to live 
uh, and bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, Philip Ryken, uh, in a sermon on Acts, he, he does a great job of, of helping to bring this down into to our world and to give some, some more examples, because this is, this is what we're taking away from this, is, is uh, that uh, we are all called, uh, in whatever area of life we're in, to, uh, to uh, do uh, good works, to bear good fruit. So he says this, he says that these examples teach us that every situation in life has its own typical temptations, its own dominating forms of depravity. Office workers are tempted to grumble. Laborers are tempted to cut corners. Businessmen are tempted to be greedy. Scholars and musicians are tempted to be arrogant. Teachers are tempted to be impatient. Children are tempted to rebel against their parents. Men are tempted to use pornography and angrily abuse their authority. Women are tempted to gossip and use their words to manipulate people. People who have been wronged are tempted to become bitter. People who suffer are tempted to self-pity. And even these are only examples. The point is that God calls every one of us to repent of our own personal sins. And now again, those are, those are generalities, uh, but they help us to start framing our, our mind to consider what, what are my uh, personal sins that I struggle with. It's one of the reasons I appreciate our order of worship at All Saints is that we have a time of corporate confession, but we have a time me- immediately after that of, of individual, private confession. And that's that time where we offer uh, and we, c- we confess our sins. We, we give them to the Lord. Uh, we we uh, acknowledge the areas of our own personal uh, failings. And note again the, the parallel to the Acts account. Uh, as, as Peter gets up and he's, uh, he is you know, giving his, his Pentecost sermon on the day of Pentecost, and the men are cut to the heart and they say, what then shall we do? We have crucified, we've been complicit in the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. What then shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And so that's what we, we all must do. We all must uh, repent, turn from our sin, turn toward uh, the Lord in repentance. So the people are in this in this state of expectation. They're they're in a heightened state of of, uh, of religious fervor, as it were, and they're they're wondering now: is this is this is this John? Is maybe he's the Christ? Uh, maybe he is the one that we've been waiting for. Uh, but John is quick to dismiss that. And he, and he says this very interesting, um, uh, very uh, important uh, uh, word about uh, the ministry of the one who's coming after him, of this Christ, which means Messiah, this anointed one. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, uh, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And let's, let's pause right there. Uh, so the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, well, what exactly does that mean? Now, again, there's, there's so many things, and uh, we're going to try to go through some of these, these quickly, uh, but uh, we could spend a uh, full, uh, full Sunday on, on uh, every single one of these things that we've covered. But what does it mean that, that uh, Jesus baptizes with Holy Spirit and fire? Well, baptism, I have to remember, is a, a sign of the covenant 
It's a covenant sign. And so baptism uh, brings uh, covenant blessings or covenant curses. So those are the two options. So everyone in this room now, uh, if you have been baptized, uh, those are your only two options. So either you'll, you'll stay in the faith, uh, you'll, you'll grab hold of your baptism. Uh, as our confession talks about, you'll approve upon that baptism, which means that you'll remember it, that you'll seek to live a life of, of repentant uh, faith uh, throughout your whole life. And that baptism will be a sign of, of blessing to you because God is blessing that. But if you've been baptized and you reject that baptism, well, that baptism now uh, becomes a covenant curse on those. And this is what uh, John is getting at here, that this is covenant blessing and covenant curses, uh, cursing. And uh, what that looks like is, uh, is the, the, the theme of, of fire uh, and the purifying fire. Uh, that uh, is so prevalent throughout Scripture. And so we see a bit of this uh, in, in, as I continue now in verse 17, where he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the question is, uh, are we uh, the wheat or, or are we uh, the chaff? Are we a good tree bearing good fruit or a bad tree Bearing bad fruit, the the axe is already at the root of the tree, and so uh, uh, one scholar puts it. Uh, J. B. Fesco, a wonderful uh, reformed uh, uh, theologian uh, professor, uh, he says uh, that thus, when uh, when John announces that the coming Messiah will baptize with spirit and fire, he has a twofold effect in view. He has blessing for the people of God, as the fire purges and refines and purifies. Uh, so this is, this is the blessing uh, that God has for his people, that we go through the refiner's fire, that we're purged of sin and of wickedness, and we're made holy as, as God is holy, and given the, the blessing of, of his spirit. So that's, that's, the, that's one of the, of the twofold effect. The other uh, is of cursing for the unbelieving world in the form of wrath and the fire of judgment. And so he, he writes again, to put it another way, uh, he says, The baptism of fire is a purification judgment on the believer whose sin is cleansed, but it is a condemnation judgment on the unbeliever who is unrepentant. And the, the biblical imagery of this that we can think of to help us think through this is the flood narrative. We think of the flood as a, as a type of, of baptism, where the whole world is baptized, as it were, in this baptism of judgment. And the unrepentant, the wicked, are, are washed away, and they're drowned in the floodwaters. But the one who's saved, Noah, he's the one who found favor in the eyes of God. God's unconditional love for him to spare him and to protect him through the ark. Uh, he's saved from this this baptism of judgment, and he's given this baptism of blessing. And so we see this, this kind of, of, of judgment uh, uh, motif uh, in, in the flood narrative to help us understand uh, what, what's going on here. So he has this, this picture then of this, of this judgment that's coming, that uh, Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is a baptism of judgment uh, that, that brings blessing for his people, 
and curses uh, for uh, the unrepentant. And again, we'll see uh, this uh, in, in Acts chapter 2 when we have the outpouring of, of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, where they are um, baptized in the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. And now uh, Jesus has brought in this, this, new, this new age of, of the Spirit where uh, his people then are empowered to live spirit-filled lives, to go and, and proclaim the good news uh, to, to all nations. So again, that's, that's the decision that's being laid before the people, and that's before, for everyone. So we either, uh, we either stand in solidarity, solidarity with Jesus, we stand in covenant with uh, the last Adam, who is Jesus, or we stand in covenant with the first Adam, and those are our two options. We either stand in covenant with the first Adam or the last Adam. John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to prepare the people so that they would stand in covenant and be in covenant with the last Adam, the one who has the winnowing fork in his hand. So we covered a lot here this morning. So these next couple verses... With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Uh, but Herod the Tetrarch, we talked about him earlier. This is um, Herod Antipas. Uh, had been reproved by John the Baptist because he took uh, Herodias, uh, his brother Philip's wife, and many other things that he had done. And so we're told that John is locked up in prison. So Luke is, is kind of wrapping up the story of John here briefly. He'll get back to it in a little bit. Uh, there's uh, more to come. But he's, he's wrapping up now uh, John's ministry, and the focus is going to be on Jesus going forward. So he wraps that up, and then I'm going to try to get through just this, uh, or at least get us started on this. Because it's interesting that Luke only has uh, these... Uh, two uh, short verses on the actual moment of Jesus' baptism, unlike uh, Matthew and Mark, who will have more to say about it. But he says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. So it even it skips over the moment of baptism, and is now talking about it in the past tense. Jesus had also been baptized, and now he's currently, present tense, he's praying, and the heavens are opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And so that's where we'll pick up next time with Jesus' baptism. So be thinking about, uh, as we go from here, why he focuses just in, in, in comparison to the other Gospels. He has a relatively short account of Jesus' baptism. So be thinking about why that might be. And then also, we're going to jump immediately into the genealogy. Now, so instead of going from baptism to temptation, which Matthew and Mark do, Luke splits those two events up, and he puts in this, this genealogy in the middle of those two. So why is that? Why, why does he do that? Well, we'll talk about that uh, next time, so make sure you come back for that to find out the answer. But uh, thank you uh, for your attention this morning. I'll see you next week.